0: Welcome. Thank you. This is, this is pretty cool. Uh, glad to have you here. Thanks for coming to this session and, and waiting. I saw a lot of people waiting out there. Uh, my name is Jed Sondwall. I run the open data program at AWS, and uh, we're going to talk today a little bit about some publicly available Earth observation data that, that we've made available, uh, as well as you're going to hear from Ian J. Gallo, which is is it the largest privately owned winery in the world. Okay. So we're going to talk about wine making wine out of the cloud. And then Digital Globe's going to talk about how they use AWS to work with Earth observation data as well, which is what my next slide was going to say. So um, first of all, I like to talk about why AWS even has an open data program and and what open data is. Uh, Open data is data that can be shared and used by anyone with no restrictions on reuse. A lot of government customers produce open data. A lot of researchers produce open data. People, organizations are being required by policy or either by their mission to make data available to as many people as possible. And we care about open data because a lot of those, these entities are our customers. We, I actually work on the public sector team at AWS. I work a lot with, with governments and with universities to make their data open. And our value proposition here is that we have a large, I mean, you know, you all in this room, we have a large group of developers and researchers that increasingly are coming to AWS for their computing needs, and making data available in the cloud makes it more easy for them to access. So I'm going to unpack what that means exactly. Like, why does AWS make it easier to work with open data? So there's a book called Data Driven. It's more, it's kind of like a pamphlet. It's a pretty short book. Um, Last time I checked, it was free on the Kindle, so you can download it. I I recommend it. And what's one of the, the best things about this book is that DJ Patil, who's the the chief data scientist of the country, and Hillary Mason actually wrote down this 80% figure that gets thrown around. I use this all the time, but since they wrote it in a book, I can quote it, and it sounds official. This idea that 80% of a data scientist's work goes into just preparing data for analysis, getting it ready in in, in the first place. And every time you share this figure, people are like, yeah, you see a lot of heads nodding. Everybody sort of agrees with it. Perhaps ironically, I don't know if there's actually been any sort of scientific research in the, like, to, to stumble upon this number, but you get you get the point. We actually have at AWS a term uh, that we use to describe this sort of thing, which is undifferentiated heavy lifting. We talk about this all the time. You may have heard it before. Uh, you may hear it at reInvent you know, throughout the week. But it's it's what we think about when we're thinking about new products and new features is looking at our customers' work and looking at... The undifferentiated heavy lifting that they have to do that's keeping them from doing what they actually want to do. What distinguishes them, uh, what they've set out to do in the first place. So when we see this, this, this figure, this idea that 80% of a data scientist's work just goes into acquiring and preparing data for analysis, we see a huge opportunity. And we talk to a lot of customers who work with, with publicly, publicly available data about their, their practices. You know, what, what is it that makes working with data hard? And traditionally, if you're working with any sort of significant volume of data, and, you know, this session is about planetary scale data, oftentimes it's on tape somewhere. Uh, it may be, you know, in a, in a government data center on tape. To get it, you might have to know somebody. You might have to fill out a form. You might have to ship disks by mail. Uh, regardless, it is oftentimes an unpredictable and costly process. Uh, costly in terms of time, especially, you know, your data scientist's time. And so what we propose is that if you make data available in the cloud, and we're going to talk a lot about S3 today, when you make data available in S3 or in the cloud, people can bring their their algorithms to the data, rather than having to worry about taking their data down to the algorithms. And this is increasingly important. We can see the mega trends in technology, and we can see that the cost of computing is continually going down. We can see that the cost of storage is continually going down. Availability of bandwidth is increasing, but not at the same rate As those other things are decreasing What this means is that we're producing Greater and greater volumes of data And we have greater capacity to work with it But moving it around isn't becoming easier At the same rate, and because of that It really makes sense to keep data Close to computing resources And, and adopt this model of making it available For, for people to, to bring their compute to the data And what's exciting to me about this Personally, what, what, what gets me really excited Is that this is tremendously democratizing when you make data available in the cloud in this way, anybody can access it without having to download and store their own copy. Previously, you know, typically the way that data is shared is there's like a download link. Um, or like I said before, you might have to ship disks. But the assumption has always been that if you want to work with 100 terabytes of data, you have to have 100 terabytes of your own storage. That's not true. That doesn't need to be true. You can have one copy in the cloud that anybody can can uh, work with. Uh, so I'm going to talk specifically about Landsat on AWS. About two years ago, it was almost two years exactly, was when we made the announcement that we would host up to a petabyte of Landsat data in the cloud. So I'm going to start polling people. Who knows what Landsat is? It's a good crowd. Okay, so I was going to say, like, who knows what raster data is? But I think, okay, yeah, right? So I, I get the idea. Okay, this this is, came to the right session. So a lot of people, uh, know what Landsat is. For those of you who don't, Landsat is the world's longest running, uh, natural resources imagery satellite program in the world. It's run by the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, it is awesome. A lot of people use Landsat. Tens of thousands of people rely on Landsat for their jobs. They use it for, uh, change analysis. Uh, you can use it for, you know, climate research, deforestation research, real estate, planning, surveillance, uh, you know, p- policy monitoring. Etc. Uh, you know, disaster response things like that. The way Landsat data is provided is in raster imagery, so it's so raster data. So, a Landsat the Landsat satellite orbits the entire planet every 16 days and produces imagery for the for all land on Earth. There's a, there's a this is embarrassing, but I usually sometimes people laugh. It took me like a year to realize that Landsat stands for land satellite. It it produces imagery of the land. Um, And what it gives you, it gives you natural color imagery. It also gives you infrared data uh, that can be used for all sorts of different kinds of analysis. So what you're seeing here is an image of Wellington, New Zealand. On the left is just a natural color image. It's very beautiful. Uh, In the middle, you see red areas that are highlighting uh, healthy vegetation. And then over on the right, there's another application of, of shortwave infrared data to highlight urban areas. And so you can get the idea that you can see from space over time you can see the progress of, of urbanization um, Health of vegetation etc cetera, etc cetera. So it's tremendously useful For a lot of different purposes And it's beautiful and it looks really really cool So we talked to our customers Who use Landsat and, and tried to figure out What their pain points were We knew that it was valuable We knew that lots of people used it uh, We got a lot of requests to, to look at it and figure out if it's something that we could work on, on making open and easier to access. And what we found is, was, first of all, that most people don't use all of the, the geotiffs that come in a Landsat scene. So all those tiffs that include all that data, they, cor- they correspond to different wavelengths of light. Most people don't use all of them. You get, like, 12 in e- for each scene right, from the Landsat 8 satellite. And so we realized a lot of people were downloading these gigabyte TAR archives where you would get all 12 bands of data. And then immediately throwing away sixty or seventy percent of the data, uh, which you know this is undifferentiated heavy lifting. You're spending a lot, of, a lot of time downloading stuff. Sixty or seventy percent of that time wasted. So we're like, okay, well we can solve that problem all at the same time for everybody. And so we work with Planet, a commercial satellite company, to, to do this. They help manage this pipeline for us. Where you turn on an EC two server, we actually we, we actually use Lambda now to pull USGS to see if there are new scenes available, send them to EC2, unpack them, and then make each GeoTIFF available as an individual object, along with some metadata files in S3. And one of the nice things about Landsat is that it has a really nice naming convention. The the naming structure is organized and makes sense. So what this effectively does is create uses S3 and just objects organized in S3 to create a read-only API to Landsat data. So you can now programmatically access the data. If you know the area of interest, you know the path and row combination that you want to look at. If you know what wavelength of light that you want to look at, it's an HTTP call. You know, it's just a GET request, and uh, and you can use S3 to do that. So that's cool. This is what this actually looks like in practice. This is just one example. Uh, this is from a guy named Drew Bollinger, a development seed who who came up with this plot for me, which I love for obvious reasons. So he. What you see here are 90,000 points uh, representing the, the time to analyze uh, various areas of interest on Landsat. And the old methodology, what you see are those, those points over on the left that are quite a bit higher. The y-axis is time. And so each of those points takes about 375, 400 seconds. Then after Landsat came about, the area for, to analyze each area of interest, and he was doing vegetation analysis, took about 50 to 75 seconds. And I, you know, I did the math and added this all up. What you're seeing in this plot is effectively 250 days of time saved for one project. Because the data acquisition process was effectively eliminated. Or, you know, and, and severely cut down. Which is, which is tremendous. And that's just for one project. This is just one guy. We know that there are tens of thousands of people that use Landsat. And so we like to think about all the seconds and even days that we get to give back to science so that people aren't just, you know, downloading and Waiting, waiting for files to, to complete, which is pretty exciting. The other stuff that we've seen that's been exciting has been all the different new interfaces and, and ways that people have thought of accessing the data. When we started talking about bringing Landsat data onto AWS, a lot of people would ask me, well, how are people going to access it? Like, what's the interface going to be? How are they going to navigate? And I was like, "Don't, don't worry about that. We're just going to provide the API. We're going to use the power of S3, and and organize it so that people who know what they want to do with it can figure it out. And immediately, we had people like Mapbox. uh, There's a group of students that created a thing called Snapsat, which is a riff on Snapchat, one of whom is here, the audience, produced these amazing interfaces to interact with the data and browse the data uh, that nobody would have expected before. And just a couple months ago, we, we saw this thing come out called Observed Earth. It's from an independent developer in Melbourne, Australia, a guy named Lachlan Hurst, Light bulb went off. He realized most iPhones these days have GPUs in them, and they're all connected to the Internet, and this data's available, and he used uh, Apple's Metal you know, gaming rendering engine to produce a really, really cool, fast interface that can access the data and process it and, and, and do visualizations of Lancer data on your phone, which... I I know for a fact that a lot of people at USGS just sort of blew their minds. So People never thought this would have been possible before because of the way that data was normally accessed. It was quite exciting. Uh, Eventually, however, we did build our own interface to interact with the data and and, and to browse through the bucket. Uh, This is a thing that we actually wrote a blog post about that we just published yesterday called Landsat on AWS.com. If you go to Landsat on AWS.com, there's a link to uh, the blog post where we describe where we built it. But what this is is a, a serverless website that produces a, a web interface to navigate all of the Landsat data that's available in S3. And what's exciting about it, this is about, a, we have about 500,000 scenes. Uh, I haven't checked recently, but that's that's probably about right. So this is an effectively a 500,000-page website, but there is no website. It doesn't exist. All it does is, when you go to the, the URLs at landsat.inaws.com, it uses API Gateway, to run a lambda, a lambda function that goes and pings the Landsat bucket and says what's in here, and shows you the the, the scene, the preview image, and lists the, the files that are available. Uh, what's neat about this though is it doesn't use JavaScript, and and the and the URLs we have a sitemap for it, so the so search engines can actually you know crawl the website and see what's there. There's no, there's no JavaScript, so it can be indexed by search engines, but the site actually doesn't exist. It only exists in your browser when you request to see it. We so think it's pretty cool and it costs basically nothing. Uh, The other great thing that we've seen is that there are all sorts of new open-source tools that are being developed and are available for you to use to work with with Earth observation data and raster imagery that can read directly from S3 now. So GDAL, number one. So I think given how many people in the room know what Landsat is, I think a lot of the people in the room probably know what GDAL is. In the past year, GDAL um, natively started supporting reads from S3. Uh, which is exciting. A lot of people have been doing this sort of thing before, but now you can read from S3 directly. We don't know necessarily if Landsat on AWS, you know, made that happen or not, but we do know that suddenly there's a huge trove of, of useful raster data that people wanted to work with in the cloud, and so it, 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 made, it made sense to start building these tools. Uh, Rasterio is a really cool tool developed by Mapbox. It's open source. It's also, also based on GDAL and, and takes advantage of the same S3 reads that GDAL has. And then SatUtils is a suite of tools that you can use uh, that's, that's managed by a company called Development Seed uh, That takes advantage of the of the Landsat data that we host As well as Sentinel-2 data Which is the European Space Agency's version of Landsat that, that is also available on S3 So these are some cool tools that you can use And then beyond that, what I, what I really want to leave with everybody here Is just that you know that we have a lot of Earth observation data That, we have, that is publicly available that we're making available on S3 for anybody to work with. Uh, we've got, we have climate models, we have global elevation data, we have high resolution, uh, imagery from the U.S. Department of Agriculture for the United States. Uh, we also have radar data that shouldn't have advanced, so I'll go back. Um, and then Shai actually from Digital Globe is gonna talk about SpaceNet, which is a corpus of, of really high resolution digital globe imagery and metadata that is awesome. But the point being, what I want you to leave with is know that this data exists for you to work with. Uh, You can work with it free of charge and and do cool stuff with it, and we we love to see what people can do with it. Beyond that, we also have a research credits program specifically for Earth observation data and Earth science. Uh, We announced this as part of our contribution to uh, the White House's Climate Data Initiative and and initiatives to to support climate research and environmental research with, with, with Earth science data. So if you have any ideas of new, new proofs of concept or tests or demos that you'd like to do, we don't want you to feel restricted by access to infrastructure. Uh, if, if you need some AWS credits to try something out using this data, we want you to apply. And so you can, you can just go to this URL. You can also just go to aws.amazon.com slash earth and there's a link to this there as well. So we, we don't, we don't want you to feel, uh, encumbered in any way. If, if, you, if you're trying something new and you want to think big. We, we'd love to see what you do. And so that's, that's my spiel. I want to invite John Webb up to the stage. So John Webb is the uh, manager of, of IT at e Gallo Gala Winery, which, like I said, is the largest privately owned winery in the world. I love the fact that we get to talk about how AWS can help us get more wine. Uh, and I, for a second there, I was like, maybe we can get them to bring some wine, but the, the session turned out to be too popular, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyway, here you go, John.
1: Thanks. Yes, what better way to use Earth observation than to make more alcohol? We are in Vegas, and so I think it's ideal that we talk about wine and spirits today. So how many of you know E.J. Gallo Winery? It's Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Remember Boone's Farm? Colorossi. Barles and James, everybody has a Gallo story that's probably a little embarrassing. But uh, the company was founded in 1933 when Prohibition ended. We started, and we've been running strong ever since. We are the largest winery in the world, and we employ over 6,000 people worldwide. We have over 90 brands. You definitely drink Gallo. You probably don't realize you're drinking Gallo. We import or export our wine out to over 90 countries and we import wine in as the largest importer of wine as well. So we have a lot. Here are some of our portfolio. We range in everything from, we still sell Bartles and James, we still sell Carlo Rossi, we still sell uh, all of those, Thunderbird, Night Train, for those that know that one, those are who you want to be partying with this evening. <laughs> just so you know. We also have premium, apothec, dark horse. We also go into ultra premium. We will sell a bottle of wine for a dollar. We will sell a bottle of wine for $600. We will sell whatever we can sell to whomever we can sell it to. But in reality, winemaking is all about wine growing, and wine growing is all about detecting change in earth observation, and that's why we're excited about the data that is now available to us, both our internal data and publicly available data. So in wine growing, we basically break it up. So we are the largest landowner in California for our own vineyards, but over 80% of our supply is actually from other growers. So a lot of our relationships are with private Small, family-owned wineries, conglomerates, et cetera. So grower relations and managing the grower relationship of not our own vineyards is huge as well. The data that we can get from Earth Observation on their farms is very critical for us to be able to try to influence the way that they grow their wine as well. Gallo Vineyards Inc. is our own winery operations, and there we get much more detailed. We have a great opportunity to do ground truthing, what we call ground truthing, uh, against the publicly available data and our data to create models that really allow us to change the way that we grow wines in order to create wines that are more popular and have the taste palette that people are looking for. Viticulture, chemistry, and analogy is our research arm. They do all of the fancy work. They're the data scientists who we're really trying, because when he says 80%, we're a little slow, so we probably spend 90% of our time putting together all of that data. They are very expensive people, and if we can take any of that time and have them be working on models rather than putting data together, then we're going to get better data, better models, better information. So we really appreciate that shifting and lifting and letting them do all that heavy lifting and then we can just create the models on top of that. And then winemaking is what happens after we grow everything. Wine is not a biomass product, so we have to think about things much more than just water and nitrogen. So we have to think about the way we actually manage the vineyard. Canopy management is probably the largest impact, and earth observation gives us the best probable opportunity without physically being in the winery to try to determine models around canopy management. Canopy management is probably the single most important thing to developing a quality grape that produces a quality wine. We also go into shoot thinning, vine balancing, trellis management, nutrients, pesticides, all kinds of data that we are collecting And it is a very high-value crop management crop, unlike some others that are just yield-based. The direct action that we do on a particular vine will have a direct result in the quality of the grape, which will have a direct result in the quality of the wine that you drink. So Dread Driven Insights is what we are really trying to do. We operate in a huge activity base. We're collecting lots of data. We collect data every day in the vineyard, all throughout the season, how we grow it, what we're doing to it, what we're applying to it, what kind of water we're doing. Uh, All of those data points create a massive amount of data for us. We have very structured data. We know tons of data. We know exactly what we're doing with it. We have unstructured data, which is just observation about things in the vineyard as well as observations from satellite imagery. And we want to be able to bring all of that data to bear in all of our decisions. So that's why data-driven value is so important for us and having the ability to do massive data analysis. Because we can impact increased yield, increase quality, uh, Disease detection, early-onset disease detection, earth observation and change detection is really huge for knowing what it is, as well as competitive analysis. Our biggest competition is actually not grapes. It's land use and almonds. Man, almonds, boy. They are really the death of the grape. (laughs) because almonds have become very popular. They make almond milk. They've they've decided that almonds are the best snack for China, and they just want lots and lots of almonds. So lots of vineyards want to pull out their grapes and put in almonds. So being able to detect even just non-related data and uh, the market trends helps us to better manage our contracts as well. So I won't go into a lot of the detail. I'll let the others get into all the details of But this is basically how we're able to leverage the Amazon infrastructure in order to combine publicly available data from various sources, all of which he mentioned, Landsat, Sentinel, Planets data, um, all of that information, as well as our own internal data that's private to us that we collect, put that all together and create insights and opportunities for our business. I think that's it.
0: Thank you very much, John. Welcome. I'm going to introduce Shai. Um, so there. More, better wine, <laughs> thanks to data. Um, so Shai Harnoy is the VP and general manager of, of Platform at Digital Globe. Uh, he's going to talk about their satellites, which are incredible. I mean, Landsat's very cool, but, man, talk about Worldview 4 a little bit. You're going to see some cool imagery. And, um, and then talk a lot about Spacenet as well, which is a corpus of Digital Globe imagery that you all can use
2: right now, which is really exciting. All right. So take a look at this shot. It's a pretty neat shot. Um, This is actually from our WorldView 3 satellite while it was way over the Pacific Ocean. What happens if you take a satellite and you turn it all the way to the side, look just over the horizon? You kind of get to count windows at the wind. It's pretty neat. And I don't have a laser pointer, but you could probably guess where we are. Um, So does everybody here know how satellites work? Just for a second. Anybody? So it's pretty neat. Like on CSI, they're like, zoom in, enhance, enhance, right? It doesn't work like that at all. Um, like at all at all. Um, so basically, these things are falling from the North Pole to the South Pole as the Earth is rotating. And so each satellite goes overhead between around 11 a.m. every morning. And it can choose where it, where it looks. It can look to the left. It can look to the right. It can look forward. It can look to the back. And we put pretty exquisite satellites into space, if I may say so myself. Um, but they're collecting machines. They collect about 3.5 million square kilometers every single day. Um, that's about 60 terabytes. We just launched a new sexy satellite called Worldview 4, uh, which is about a half-a-billion-dollar asset. You slap some, uh, some explosives onto it, launch it up into space, and hope for the best. Um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it's kind of what you're doing, but it's actually a pretty sophisticated process with ground systems all over the world. It's pretty neat. This is what our collections look like. So over the last three days, we've collected imagery over each one of these little orange stripes. Over the last two weeks, over the last three months. Each one of these is an incredibly high resolution image at about, you can detect MacBook errors or so per pixel. So it's about 30 centimeters per pixel. It's about a foot. Um, it's pretty interesting. If you stack these collections, this is actually the Earth, um, given our image library. The tall um, towers are typically population centers, parts of the world that are, that are changing the, the most quick. Um, there's a lot of in, in really interesting information locked inside what we like to call the time machine of the planet. Let's zoom into one of these shots. So this is an overhead shot of, I think we're somewhere in this image. This is a Venetian. Um, This is what it looks like at, I think, 30 centimeters. Um, And I don't know if it's working out um, uh, on the screen, but where you see an image, a beautiful image, and cars and the swimming pool, I actually see a bunch of data screaming to get out. There's so much information locked inside this beautiful image. If only we could get it out, if only we can extract it. So this is our goal. This is what I'd like to challenge us all with, and challenge the community, that we want to do large-scale information extraction from each and every one of these images that come down from these satellites. Now fortunately, there's a few trends working in our favor. One, Amazon Web Service, they're hosting us here today. But the availability of cheap and accessible cloud computing is making it such that you don't have to transfer the data. You can bring the compute to where the data resides. Two, the advancements in deep learning. Advancements in convolutional neural nets have been incredibly promising in the field of spaceborne imaging. What this means is that instead of being an expert on each object that you're looking to detect, it used to be that you had to describe to a computer what an airplane looks like. Canny edge detection, anyone? Yeah? Like, hey, detect edges and look for them to intersect at these angles with this sort of uh, paint material and this sort of uh, design. Now we have a much easier but more computationally intensive job of throwing a bunch of training data into a well-structured net and seeing the results. And then finally, the ecosystem. There's a whole host of companies, many of them represented in this room, that are, are constantly innovating around this space, trying to understand what's going on inside these imagery. So our goal is to open up GEO to this world of innovators working on deep learning. We want to solve an entirely new class of problems that have never been solved before. So at Digital Globe, we're doing three things. We're doing GBDX, crowdsourcing, and SpaceNet. The whole goal is to enable an ecosystem of people to extract information from our imagery, to create insights from these beautiful pixels that we've always just looked at, but now we can understand. So GBDX is our attempt to get our data out of jail. We've created a host of APIs, put all of our data accessible in the cloud, such that you can run compute against it. We've spun up thousands of nodes constantly on a on 24-7 basis uh, to run compute against this imagery. So the, the challenge with high-resolution imagery with multiple spectral bands, with lots of temporal collections, meaning a lot of, a lot of uh, images over the same site, is that you don't want to transfer it. You want to be able to bring your compute... To where the data resides and so we built a suite of apis our workflow our catalog apis our maps api in order to enable that to happen so you could bring your own algorithms and run it against the data number two is crowdsourcing we need to scale humans until machines get smarter so i might get something thrown at me here but it turns out the machines are still kind of dumb we're making great strides right at an exponential rate but they're still dumb relative to what an expert can do and so using this is a way that we can scale humans until machines catch up, and also as a mechanism of training humans. And then finally, and this is a collection, connection to the open data, um, we released our SpaceNet, SpaceNet data set. Um, it's a training and testing data set to allow be- benchmarking and iteration. Let me talk to you about why SpaceNet in particular is important. So there's a bunch of common frameworks that have been released. There's TensorFlow, there's, there's Torch, there's Cafe. These are commonly used um, uh, uh, frameworks for deep learning, for convolutional neural nets. So people don't have to start from scratch. One of the observations we made is that the ImageNet database, it was only once it was released that there was a common set of truth. Then, oh, let me try something again. I might get something thrown at me again. Um, any uh, PhDs, uh, people with PhDs in the audience? <laughs> right on. One, Nate, really? Is that the only one? <laughs> Cool, Um, so historically, in a lot of research, people pick the the example that best illustrates the power of what they've built. While that's interesting and logical, it's only once you have a common ground truth to compare algorithms against each other that you really accelerate the innovation. Otherwise, everybody just builds their own and drinks their own Kool-Aid, if you will. And so ImageNet was a data set released by UC Berkeley in order to make that common baseline for image recognition, for computer vision. And it, along with the frameworks that were released alongside it, really accelerated the detection and the accuracy of, um, uh, of computer vision applications. This is what we're trying to do here for the G- in the geo world. So we took a bunch of data, curated it. It's 50-centimeter worldview two imagery. It's got eight spectral bands, uh, each about 200, correspond to 200 meters on the ground, uh, covering a fairly sizable area in Brazil. It's about 7,000 images, and um, we put it all on, on AWS. Put um, all um, in the open data S3 buckets on AWS. And our goal here is to encourage a community to rally behind this data set. That if we make the frameworks easy to use, if we make the use cases interesting enough, If we make the data accessible enough, it will encourage a variety of use cases That we don't even know about yet. That's the vision and that's the mission. Let's talk a little bit about the data set. And I know we have some time for questions. So. Um, this data set was initially created for the Rio Olympics. Um, as you know, uh, the Olympics that occurred earlier this year, um, lots of interest from various security uh, uh, bodies and uh, folks that want to keep the venue safe. And so there's a fairly sizable um, uh, activity to try to map and understand the developed world, the, the developed uh, part of Brazil that's hosting the, uh, the Olympics. And so what you're seeing are the polygons uh, overlaid on top of the buildings um, that make up the SpaceNet database. So going from a beautiful image to understanding where all or most of the buildings are uh, in the image. Now, our vision is to create a database where you can now use this to train your algorithms, to adjust your frameworks, to leverage the open source frameworks that exist in order to accelerate the pace of innovation against overhead imagery. Um, it's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, there's a few things that you can expect. I know there's folks here from disparate in- industries. Um, one, satellite imagery analytics is going to become way more common in your industry. So hard stop. The, available, the availability of imagery, the accessibility of compute, of cheap compute against it, the availability of tools, this is coming. We're seeing it affect winemaking. We're seeing it affect land use. We're seeing it affect construction. We're seeing it affect... Uh, where should I send my uh, supply chain choke points? Uh, transportation. It's affecting a host of, of industries that weren't tra- uh, traditional consumers of imagery directly, but that can now leverage the insights uh, extracted from it. Computer vision, computer vision applications are going to change the way we see our world. It's already happening in our pockets with our, with our phones tr- that machines are able to understand and interpret what we're taking pictures of. But when you have uh, cameras in space, we can understand our planet. We're going to learn a lot from this. We don't know what's, what the killer app is. Maybe that's the challenge of the industry. But there's a lot of opportunity here, and we encourage you to give it a shot. Um, so go check it out on, on the public data uh, public sets on AWS, or come to developer.digitalglobe.com. You can try GBDX yourself um, and come hang out. I think my next slide is, uh, says thank you.